I hope that you were able to get a study guide either from the internet or in the foyer of the church as you came in. We'll be following our study guide closely as this morning we come to 10 o'clock on the clock, which is perseverance. Now you'll notice that some of these titles are in different colors. God has done some of the work by himself, such as creation, but then we get to cooperate with him in conversion, in sanctification, and this morning in perseverance. Now, sometimes people would get the idea when you say perseverance of the saints that I'm the one doing the persevering. But you'll notice on your study guide that it says preservation of the saints because Christ is the one who is carrying us along the way. We're running the race, but Christ is helping us to run that race. So here is the question. Can you lose your salvation? And that's what we want to talk about this morning as we discuss the preservation of the saints. Here's a good illustration that some of you young men in Enfire may have run into from Pastor R.W. Glenn. It's the old steam-powered locomotive illustration. Here's one of the old trains chugging down the track. And if that train is going to keep going, you've got to feed coal into the furnace of the engine as the fuel for the train to make it to its destination. Now, there are two things. One would be staying on the tracks. Occasionally, we have a derailment, and that causes all kinds of problems. Staying on the tracks, that is perseverance. Feeding the coal into the engine, into the furnace of the engine, that would be sanctification. Applying the means of grace so that we may have the spiritual energy, God calls it grace, to press on in this race that he has given us. Now, this doctrine exposes a sharp contention between the Reformers, that would be Luther and Calvin and Knox and Zwingli and others, between the Reformers and the mother Catholic Church from which they were leaving. The Catholics would believe that this would be one of the most pernicious heresies of Protestantism, that we would say, once saved, always saved, assuming that that means that there's no question about my assurance of salvation. I'm going to heaven no matter what happens to me, no matter what I do. Let me read to you from Catholic Answers, a publication that is approved by the bishop here, uh, Bishop um, Robert H. Brom, Bishop of San Diego, and here's what it says. There are few more confusing topics than salvation. It goes beyond the standard question posed by fundamentalists, have you been saved? What the question also means is this, don't you wish you had the assurance of salvation? Evangelicals and fundamentalists think that they have such an absolute assurance. All they have to do is accept Christ as their personal Savior and it's done. They might well live exemplary lives thereafter, but living well is not crucial and definitely does not affect their salvation. Then further, he says the same thing again. For many fundamentalists and evangelicals, it makes no difference as far as salvation is concerned how you live or end up your life. You can heed the altar call at church, announce that you've accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, and so long as you really believe it, you're set. From that point on, there is nothing you can do, no sin you can commit, 
no matter how heinous, that will forfeit your salvation. You can't undo your salvation even if you wanted to. I'm still quoting. Does this sound too, be good to, too good to be true? Yes. But nevertheless, it's something that many Protestants claim. Now, some Protestants would believe the same way as the Catholics that you can lose your salvation. What about it? Can you lose it? Can you give it up if you decide later on you have changed your mind? Well, I want to look at it from a particular perspective this morning, that being the perspective of the Reformers. And if you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, I want to read verses 3 through 5. Ephesians chapter 1. This would be my explanation. Hopefully based on the Scripture, and you search the Scriptures to see if we're on target. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Now when you see that word predestined, the antennas go up. What does that mean? Well, there are a couple of possibilities. We've looked at this back at 7 o'clock. But one would be, you do see the word predestined in several places in the New Testament, so God is doing something. And one possibility would be that God, before the foundation of the earth, looks down the corridor of time into the future and sees that I will choose Him, and then He chooses me on that basis. The Reformers, that would be the Arminian view, the Reformers believe that God chose us before the foundation of the world according to the kind intention of His will. Now, it would appear to me, see what you think, if I'm the one who's originally doing the choosing, then I might change my mind somewhere along the way. I can't trust my own heart because the Bible says he is a fool who trusts in his own heart. But if God is the one who is ultimately doing the choosing, then I can trust in him to keep me, to deliver me from any temptation. There's none too strong for me to handle, but he'll provide a way to escape. And so I would suggest if God is doing the choosing, I am not going to be unchoosing him at some point along the way. Now, there may be backsliding. There may be a lot of obstacles in the path, as we will see as we run the race of life. But we'll take a look. Now, someone would say, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. What if he hasn't chosen me? Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 22:17, And there are many things that we could say about this topic. This is not the, our topic for study this morning. But just a couple of things. One, Revelation 22:17, And the Spirit and the bride, that's the church, say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. God extends a universal invitation. Come. But who will heed the invitation? John 6:37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one that comes to me I will by no means cast out. If you're here this morning and you're not certain 
about salvation, come to Christ. He will welcome you. Now let's begin with a man running the race. He is running the race of life. There's a question in your study guide, which race should we be careful to run? Hebrews 12.1. It says, let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. As I'm running this race, it might be easy for me to look at someone else over here running his race that's marked out for him and say to myself, you know, if I had the race that he's got, man, I'd be cruising too. If I had the family he has, if I had the wife, the husband, the money, the business, or whatever, fill in the blank, then I would be looking pretty good in this race. But my race, ooh, it's an uphill race and it's a rocky road. God has the race mapped out for all of us. That race is going to help us to be conformed to the image of Christ as we run it in His power. Well, what about the mess that I made for myself in the race? Yes, God is working through that also. And He will use that even as we see in the life of the Apostle Paul when he was Saul before he was converted. Uh, Many men in Scripture were going in one direction and then they repented and went in another direction. What is the goal of life? Now, we can have a number of answers to this question, but I would suggest to you that there's a good answer given in Revelation 21 and verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. That would be one goal, to be with God. One day we're going to be with God. What is the chief end of man? The question is asked in the Westminster Confession, and we all know the answer to that question, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, what if you had a good friend that was more than just a friend? He was just your best friend, your closest friend, but he was far away, and you received emails from him, and you received letters But what would you desire? You would desire to be with Him. And at some point, we will be with God. Here is another goal, Ephesians 1, 4. The one we read, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. So there would be another goal to be holy. And you remember in Hebrews 12, God tells us, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, there are degrees of holiness, and some may be more advanced than others, but I'm moving toward being conformed to the image of Christ. There are many secondary goals that stem from these two. So we might talk about other things and the goal to win the world for Christ, and I wouldn't argue with that. But these are two very basic goals. Now, I need to remind you, this race is not a sprint. But it's not a marathon. It is a steeplechase race. Now, steeplechase races are becoming more popular these days. And they run in the mud and they climb over the obstacles. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. There are obstacles to the goal. We're going to consider some of those obstacles. 
Here's a guy running down the track, but all of a sudden, there is an obstacle in his path. First obstacle, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And here is our first obstacle, the devil. The devil is a fallen angel who is the supernatural epitome of evil. He is a murderer. He is a liar. He is the accuser of the brethren. He's only been studying one book for the past 6,000 years, and that is the book of the human heart. And he knows a lot more tricks than we do. So we want to be alert against him. We want to be covered with the full armor of Christ and be ready for whatever tricks he may bring out, the wiles of the devil, we're told. But we're running along the race. We got past that obstacle. Now there is another obstacle, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. What? Don't love a beautiful morning like this when the season is changing and you look out at the sky and it's just a lovely sunrise? Well, he's not talking about the cosmos, the birds, the trees, the flowers. Certainly we can enjoy God's creation. He's not talking about the people of the world. We are to love people. We are to share the gospel with them. He is talking about the anti-God, anti-Christ system that is opposed to everything that we would believe in its values, in its principles, in its axioms. Did you see it this past week at the Democratic Convention? Get rid of God. Get him out of here. We don't want God on the part of some people. I hope that number is not growing in our culture. But it looks like we're seeing the secularization of our nation. Well, that would be the next obstacle, the world. And remember, it's the anti-Christ system that we're talking about. They have their way of doing business. They might cheat you if you're not careful. They have their language. They might talk about God, but not the way we would speak of God. They have their forms of entertainment. The entertainment might seem innocent enough, but be careful. There's a worldview that's loaded in much of the entertainment, a Hollywood worldview. But there is yet a third obstacle as we are running the race. And here it is, the flesh. Galatians 5.17, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Now, sometimes the word flesh in Scripture is used in different ways. It can refer to the body. But in this case, it refers to the old sinful nature. There's nothing inherently sinful about the body as God created it. It's the temple of the Spirit. It's the heart down inside with its old nature that gets the body in trouble. We're told to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Some belief systems would say, oh, it's the body that's evil and the soul is inherently good and at death, the good soul will be cut away from the evil body. That's not the teaching of the Scripture. Well, there are the obstacles in the path 
and we can't get over those obstacles by ourselves. We can't reach the goal alone. This guy got impaled on the first hurdle there, and uh, that would be a problem. So we come to 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth through a living hope, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you get that? Shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that will be revealed on the last day. Of course, I might die before that last day comes. So we see that the Heavenly Father is helping us to run the race, helping us to get past these obstacles in our way. But we're not finished. Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. Jesus is speaking, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. That sounds rather ominous, doesn't it? But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And then from John 17 and verse 20, Christ is saying, My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Christ ever lives to make intercession for us, and he is praying for us as we run the race. God the Father, and then God the Son. But we're still not finished. Ephesians 1, the last part of verse 13 and verse 14. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Do you want a guarantee? The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. He is our earnest with whom we are sealed for the day of redemption. So we see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all joining us in running the race. All around the clock, we have seen the Trinity at work. And this is a good evidence for the Trinity. If you're doing the work of God, you must be God. The Father does the work of God, the Son does the work of God, and the Holy Spirit does the work of God. And they're involved in these different points of doctrine. So we will reach our goal with God's help. And we will have the help of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon gives the example here of the believer who is on board a ship. And he may stumble, but he's never going to stumble overboard. When he stumbles, he's going to get back up. He's still on board the ship. Now, this doesn't mean that he can take off his life jacket and just throw caution to the wind and live however he wants, the same way the world lives. He still is running the race with perseverance. What is God's role in this race that we're running? We go back to the Old Testament now. It looks like it might be an obscure verse. But Jeremiah 32:40, God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. 
I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. The King James says, put my fear in their hearts. God is going to do a work in our hearts to inspire us to fear Him. If I don't fear God, maybe I don't have that work in my heart. You see, it's not just a matter of intellectual belief. It's a matter of doing business with the Lord in my heart. What is our role? To figure out everything I can get away with and still escape the fire? That would be the idea of some young people that I've worked with in school. Uh, What can I do? How far can I go in a dating relationship or whatever and still not get into uh, trouble with, with God? That's not the question. The question is, how far can I go with the Lord to become like Him? Proverbs 28, 14. Here is our part. Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. A reverential respect of the Lord, and even more than that, even more than that, because if I am blatantly opposing God in rebellion, then I can fear that God's wrath will come upon me. Now, someone may have fallen into some erroneous thinking or some problem area of their lives, but if they continue in that, then they would have to be suspect as to whether they have had the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. God's role, number two, again from the Old Testament, Second Chronicles 19.9. He gave them, the Levites, these orders. You must serve faithfully and wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord. In every case that comes before you, you are to warn them not to sin against the Lord. Otherwise, His wrath will come upon you and your brothers. Do this and you will not sin. Now, we know that our sin, if we're believers, is covered under the blood of Christ. But does the New Testament warn us not to sin? Why, yes, it does. It says, put off the old self, corrupted by its deceitful desires. And a number of other verses that tell us that we are to be done with that old life and get on the new life. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Here's a second part of that, Psalm 81.8. Hear, O my people, and I will warn you if you would but listen to me. The King James says, hearken unto me. And that doesn't mean that just that you hear, but that means that it goes right to your heart and you obey. Now here is a great example of God's warning. And it's also a good example of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility working right together in the very same event that's taking place. Mark it in your Bible. It's Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27, and the man is the Apostle Paul, and Luke is recording this, and Luke gives us a very detailed accounting of what is going on. An example of God's warning. 
Here is a Roman grain ship, and we know a lot about those ships now and what they look like and how they sailed. It would be the remains of the hull of a ship that was found in a lake about 19 miles south of Rome. That's been excavated. I don't know if you can see the worker in the little red circle, but this was a large ship. And Paul boarded one of these ships to be taken to Rome to appeal his case to Caesar, but he was lost at a storm and a storm at sea. Acts 27 and verse 23. A very unusual thing takes place. Maybe the sort of thing that's taking place in Iran and other places around the world even now. Last night, says Paul, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood by me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of of all who sail with you. Now we know that the ship ran aground on the Isle of Malta. So there's the word from the Lord through the angel as to what is going to happen in the future. Now is God just a divine fortune teller or has he planned things that way? Well, the Bible says he has planned things that way. Acts 27 and verse 30. Something new comes in now against the plan. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let down the lifeboat into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Now the sailors know something that the soldiers probably aren't thinking about. Maybe they knew it too. But the Apostle Paul, you remember, was a world traveler, and he understood this pretty well, understood it pretty well. The sailors, pretending to let out the anchors, are letting down the lifeboat because they know that the draft of the lifeboat is much less than the draft of that huge ship. And when that ship comes crashing in there toward the island, it's either going to run aground on the rocks or on the sand, and then the danger is, unless the sailors can set that ship right directly, hitting the barrier straight ahead, it's going to hit it sideways and it's going to roll over and over in the surf and everybody's going to be lost pretty quickly. So Paul is saying, wait a minute. Well, let's see what he says. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. There's the warning. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. What's going on here? God has already said that they would all be saved, everybody in the boat. But now God is saying, wait a minute, you can't be saved unless you keep those sailors on board because they're going to sail the ship until it runs aground. And then while the surf is breaking up the stern of the ship, you're going to have an opportunity to deboard the ship and get you aboard to float on on into the island. So what's going on? There is God's sovereignty He says everyone will be saved, but God uses means. God doesn't just choose people out of heaven. I'll take you and you and you. He uses the means of evangelism to reach those people. And that's how we can be sure that our evangelism will be certain. Our evangelism will be sure. When I'm giving out the message... I don't have to twist someone's arm. I had better be able to present it very well that they can understand. 
but it's God the Holy Spirit who works in their heart to help them see their need and respond. Well, let's see what happens in the shipwreck, Acts 27:41. But the ship stuck, a sta- struck a sandbar and ran aground. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump aboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. In verse 37, 276 persons, most of whom I'm sure could not swim because they didn't have the leisure of learning how to swim in those days. 276 persons. Would they have made it, would everyone have been saved, if the sailors had jumped ship? Well, Paul said they wouldn't. And I think, well, what what about what God said? Well, God is going to bring to pass what He tells us, but He uses means, and we have the privilege of being part of those means. So here's what we're saying. All who were chosen by God before the foundation of the world are redeemed by Christ and sealed by His Holy Spirit. They are preserved by the power of God and they persevere to the end. Our confidence is not in ourselves, but in Christ and what He has done for us on the cross. I don't think that Christ would impute His righteousness to a believer and then unimpute it later on. We are a new creation. Would it be possible that we could be uncreated somewhere down the track? So we've said many times, if your faith fizzles at the finish, I believe it would have been faulty from the first. But now we have a problem. What about failures on the path? Because we have all known people, many of us have known people, who were following the Lord, who were involved in church, who were pastors perhaps in some Christian ministry, and all of a sudden... We looked and they not only left the church, they left the faith and maybe adopted a lifestyle even of an unbeliever. What about failures on the path? Here's our man running down at least the path marked out for him toward being with God and being holy. And it seems that some deviate from the path. Let's take a look in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. They may have thought that they belonged, but at some point they turned aside, they went with another group, another group that wasn't following the teaching of the Scripture. But some good news for myself, some of us. Psalm 37 23 and 24. If the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his steps firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. That must have been where Charles Spurgeon got his idea of being on board the ship. God is holding my hand. I'm going to stumble, but if I am a true believer, God is going to help me up and get me back on the path, even as he did with King David. So here is somebody who went off in a direction, 
But then they recognized their sin. They came back to the Lord to get back on the path. This would be getting the train back on the tracks after a derailment. Anybody here this morning with a derailment? True eternal security. Some verses for us. We read this one earlier. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The next verse, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Next verse, I and the Father are one. In closing, there are some biblical promises to rely on. And before we run through those promises quickly, let me remind you that there are verses that give a strict warning. For instance, Paul, 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after having preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. Now, if you read the context there, I don't think he's being disqualified from salvation. I think he's being disqualified from further service to the Lord. Sometimes people go along. I, I knew a man. My cousin was a minister of music in a church. And this man had tremendous church growth as the pastor of a large church. But then he fell into sin and suddenly he was gone. And that was the end of his ministry. Uh, Maybe he came back later on to do some things. I don't know. I never heard of that again. So we can be disqualified from further service to God. One more, and there are several of these. Romans 11.22. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. If you read the context, I think it's clear that he's talking to the Gentile churches. And you remember in Revelations, the churches in Asia were cut off. The church at Ephesus and Pergamum and so forth, they didn't keep their lamp stand with the light burning, and they were removed. There were individual Christians as a part of those groups who did persevere to the end and who did go to heaven. So if this church doesn't continue on the straight and narrow path that God has mapped out for us, then our lampstand would be removed. Gerald Sarawaji told us about that. Now those are some of the warnings. There are some explanations as you read those, and others might say, well, now wait a minute, you could be disqualified, you could lose your salvation. Now let's see what God would tell us in other parts of the Scripture, some promises that we can rely upon. John 6:37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Two verses later, John 6:39, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. I shall lose none of all that He has given me. Philippians 1:6, Being confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.12 I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted Him for that day. Now, I entrusted it to Him because I saw my need for Him, because He opened my eyes spiritually to be able to see. 
2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So I don't think it's so much the perseverance of the saints as it is the preservation of the saints. And that should give us a very humble spirit in our hearts. And that should give us a great motivation to stick close to the Lord. Now here are some categories. Listen carefully. See which category you might fit into as we close. Those who are secure but not sure. Those who are secure in their salvation but not sure. That might be doubting Thomas. Do you remember? I got to see it to believe it. Those who are sure but not secure. Those who are sure but not secure. And that would be the Pharisees who are sons of their father, the devil. They were so sure that God, Abraham, was their father and that God was their father on top of that. But Jesus said, you are sons of your father, the devil. They were sure, but not secure. Those who are both secure and sure. And I hope that's the one you're in, the disciples after the resurrection. You remember they said, oh yeah, now we see, we remember he told us, and this supernatural power displayed here, now we can carry forth with sharing the gospel to the nations. Fourth category and last those who are neither secure nor sure. And that might be King Agrippa, the rich young ruler, you remember, who went away sadly. Those who are neither secure or sure. If you're here this morning and you're not sure and you don't sense that security of the Holy Spirit dwelling within, I would encourage you Come to Him as we pray. The Spirit says come. The church says come. We invite you not to join the church. We'd love to have you join the church. But to come to Christ to experience forgiveness for your sins and have your name enrolled in that book of life. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us an offer to come to you. But Lord, we see from our sinful hearts that we probably wouldn't choose the good. As you tell us, there's nothing good that dwells within us in our old nature. None is righteous. We probably wouldn't choose the good unless we were able to see things as they really are. Lord, we thank You that You have revealed to us Yourself and Your plan. We see the natural man doesn't understand the things of Your Spirit because they are spiritually understood. But we thank You that You have revealed them to us. Perhaps there would be someone here this morning to whom the revelation is coming. And we thank You, Lord, that it's a simple thing to acknowledge that we are sinners We are in need of forgiveness. We ask you for that forgiveness of our sin that only you can give. 
We ask You, Lord Jesus, to come into our lives, to take control of our lives, to make us the kind of people You want us to be. Lord, we see these main things in Scripture. And that's what we don't want to miss. And I pray then for those who are secure and sure that You would guide us along the way, that You would keep us on the tracks toward our eternal destination, and that we might be continually shoveling in the spiritual food that we need to carry on this race and to run it with perseverance. Thank you so much for your revelation to us in Scripture and for your Holy Spirit that applies it to our hearts. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen.